my soul waits for the Lord. A Song of Ascents, Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray for Lucas before uh, he brings this word before us. So, um, uh, I don't know about you, but I've been looking forward to uh, getting Lucas back. Um, in some ways, um, it's, it's a big thing for the Lord to continue to work uh, in, in our lives and in his life and have him back. Uh, as we learned on, on our kind of fifth birthday, in some ways, it's another day uh, where uh, a person gets up and opens God's word, and, and it's the Lord who has to speak to us. So I was going to pray that, that he does that. So, um, and Jesus, we thank you for uh, your promises that you are building your church. Uh, we thank you that you are doing that uh, in, in more ways than we are even aware of. Um, your spirit is, in, is, is on the move uh, in our midst. Um, uh, we thank you for, um, for looking after us. Uh, we thank you for uh, what you've been doing in, in, in Lucas's life, um, just the journey that he's been on, that, that we've been on with him uh, as his brothers and his sisters. Let's um, pray from this morning, God. Uh, I thank you for what, what Paul uh, lays out for us in First Corinthians about your power and your wisdom, that, that you actually use weak people, uh, not, the, not the strong ones. Uh, you use the weak people uh, to do powerful things through. And... I know Lucas is, is weaker than normal uh, this morning. Um, I just pray that you would uh, lift him up, God, that you go before him. Uh, spirit, that you would um, speak powerfully through, through a weak person um, and that you would be glorified, God. This is all about you, Jesus. Uh, we thank you for uh, your servant, our brother, Lucas. Um, just be with him, Lord. Praise things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, well, it is good to be back after four months. Um, I've missed uh, being up here, uh, but we've had excellent teachers, both those outside of Village and uh, our own um, elders and elder candidates. And so uh, I've missed uh, you guys, and I'm kind of easing back in so uh, to kind of normal ministry rhythms and things like that. So um, yeah, it's good to be back. Um, I want to ask you, what generation are you a part of? Um, so I'm going to go through them, and uh, I want you to raise your hand. So is there anyone here from the uh, either silent or greatest generations? That would uh, mean you were born um, in 1945 or earlier. It would be those that are 72 and older. Anyone here from that generation? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think so. Uh, okay, we might have some here. Baby boomers, 
Um, you would have been born between 1946 and 64, so you, we work out the math, you'd be like kind of 53 to 71. Any, anyone here? Okay. Got a couple. Got a couple. Nice. Hopefully we get some more. Hopefully we get some more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, bring your friends. Uh, be great. Uh, we're a young church, but we, we're praying that we uh, get older, um, as it were. Uh, I was praying that we get more gray hair. I stopped praying that because I think the Lord just gave me more gray hair. So uh, I, I, was, I met in other people like uh, in that way. So, okay, what about Gen X, Generation X? Uh, you would have been born between, these, this is the Pew Research Center. This, this is their definitions. So I know other people, whatever, but uh, if you're Gen X, you'd be born between 1965 and 1980. So that's those of us who are 37 to 52. So Gen Xers, all right, yes, my people. All right, so a few Gen Xers uh, uh, around. Uh, and then we get to the millennials, um, 1981 to 1996. So you'd be 21 to 36. Gen X, or millennials, yeah, I knew that'd be kind of the, the majority. And then we have uh, post-millennials or Generation Z or whatever it is. They're trying to figure out what it is. But basically, those of you that are born in, uh, you'd be, what, 1997 and later. So 16 to 20, 20 and under. All right. Yes. Got a few of them as well. So um, awesome. Um, We have all these kind of generations and where you kind of fit in uh, there. I'm Gen X, uh, often referred to as the forgotten generation, uh, because you hear all these like stuff about millennials and how they're interacting with baby boomers, and you know they're mad at baby boomers, and, I, and I'm like, what, what about uh, like what about Gen X? Like we like we don't even get considered anymore. But um, in my generation, and me kind of growing up, um, part of that was here, part of that was in the, in the U.S. Um, something happened kind of during my generation, um, and I, I kind of watched it happen and experienced it in, in my lifetime, and really what happened during my generation is we lost a, uh, a sense of a shared morality of what was right, uh, what was wrong um, in that sense. We lost this kind of sexual morality. We, we had the sexual revolution of the 70s. Uh, we were kind of coming through that and, and everything that kind of um, transpired because of that. You had this kind of reaction um, in the U.S. Uh, there was this group called the Moral Majority, and they were, they were trying to recover uh, or they were trying to hang on to this sense of our shared kind of uh, moral sense uh, of what, you know, collectively we kind of thought our shared morality was. Um, and this was kind of during, in the U.S., kind of during that Reagan-Bush uh, era, and then um, you had Clinton come in, and there was the Clinton sex scandal, you remember that? And that was a big deal back then, right? Um, there was this real sense of um, our, our shared morality um, was definitely kind of gone. Um, there was this definition of, you know, well, what is right and what is, what these questions were being asked. Now, right now, um, people who thought that Clinton, um, you know, was a immoral man probably would love to have a guy like that back in office, right? Now you have Trump who's supposed to be in more of a, the conservative party and, uh, well, we all know his kind of storied past, right? It's, it's anything goes. 
Anything goes. Who are you to tell me what I can and cannot do with my body, with my birth, with my gender, with my marriage, with my sexuality? You know, what is truth exactly? What is right and wrong? And so many people can't really appreciate, I I think, this psalm, um, Psalm 130, uh, because we've lost a sense of guilt that comes from realizing who we are in the presence of God, in the presence of the Holy One. Um, we were taught, when I was taught, you know, kind of growing up, uh, that we should confess our sins and that God would instantly forgive us. We just pull the, you know, 1 John 1, 9 lever. Um, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins, right? You pull the 1 John lever and forgiveness kind of came out the chute at the bottom. Um, but that teaching seemed to result in, in kind of this flippant view of forgiveness, this kind of flippant view of sin and, and a much too casual view of, of kind of God and his forgiveness to us, right? So you can kind of shrug off looking at pornography because, yeah, I kind of blew it, but, you know, I claim First John, and so everything, everything's okay. And so I think some of that has crept in, into the church. Charles Spurgeon says that, we, that too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of their Savior. We don't feel what the psalmist feels in this. The psalmist in, in, in Psalm 130 is feeling the weight of his sin and his guilt. We've, um, the, the guys that have come before me have, have, have already explained that Psalm 130 is part of a group of psalms uh, called the Psalms of Ascent, right? The pilgrims are walking, really ascending up to Jerusalem, which sat on a hill. And they would sing these songs as they went up to this city uh, for, the, for the great Jewish festivals. And as such, then, these songs were not only there for worship as they walked, but they were preparing their hearts for the corporate worship that they would engage in once they got to the temple. And as Christians, our kind of festival, if you will, in corporate worship is the Lord's Supper. As we approach it, we should, too, prepare our hearts, right? We should be aware of our need for forgiveness, so that as we partake with thankful and reverent hearts to our gracious God who sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins as we, that we deserved. And so the psalm, this psalm of a sense, takes us from this, the depths of our, of our guilt and despair to the heights of this joyous hope in the Lord. And so our main, our, our main theme, the, the one thing that I want us to get and understand this morning is that no matter how deep you are in guilt and despair, you can cry out to God for forgiveness, knowing that he delights in abundant, in, abundant, in plentiful redemption. So we have to kind of, this, the, the message of this psalm is literally what they would be doing. They would be walking from below up to the heights. And that's what the psalm is going to do. It's going to take us from the depths of our guilt and despair. And as we cry out to God for forgiveness, knowing that he delights in abundant redemption. And so we have kind of four points this morning. Um, And so this psalm has four stanzas, if you will, these two verses each. Um, and so we have four, four kind of points. So the first one, you can cry out for mercy no matter how deep in the depths you are. 
I apologize if I have to drink a lot. I basically have no saliva glands at the minute. They're not working. Hopefully, they'll come back. Um, so, verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. This idea of the depths here that he's using, it's referring to, um, to water. It's the depths of the ocean. It's being in the very depths of, of the deep. Jonah um, knew about the depths. And I want to, uh, let me just read, if you have your Bibles, um, you can turn, uh, flip over to the right um, a bit. I, I want to read uh, Jonah um, chapter 2. And this is really labeled Jonah's prayer. This is someone who understood the depths of sin, of guilt, of disobedience. And so it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord. Now here's someone who, again, do you see the, 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 the kind of mirror of what's happening here? Out of the depths I cried out to you, O Lord, Psalm 130. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, that's hell, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was failing, fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. Let me say that again. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope. Their hope of what? Steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto the dry land. Jonah understood the depths, but he also understood who the Lord was. And he cries out to him in his most vulnerable time, understanding his guilt. He had just blatantly disobeyed the Lord. The, the Lord said, Jonah, I want you to do this. And Jonah said, uh, no thanks, I'm going to do this instead. And um, ends up in, in this punishment, as you will, in the, in the belly of this fish, in, in the depths. And he cries out to the Lord, understanding who God is, a God of steadfast love, a God of forgiveness, a God of second chances. Those of us who know who God is, if you're a Christian here this morning, those of us who know the Holy One ought to know something or should know something of our own sin and guilt. 
We know something of our own sin and guilt. Isaiah, who's a prophet of the Lord, a holy man, if you will, when he's face to face and encounters God, what does he say? Hey, hey, God, it's me, uh, the prophet Isaiah. Good to, be, good to see you. No, even even the, the the preacher, even the prophet. Even the one who was sent by God, when he comes face to face, this is what he says. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And at that moment, Isaiah was in the depths. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly that the evil is still in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. There's a sense that when you get a glimpse of God and his holiness, it plunges you into the depths of guilt and despair so that you cry out for mercy. Which leads us to verse 2. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Charles Spurgeon says it matters little where we are if we can pray. But prayer is never more real and acceptable than when it rises out of the worst places. Deep places beget deep devotion. It's when we are at our our worst. It's when we are at our most needy. It's when we're at our most vulnerable that we cry out to God. And it's in those times that our devotion to the Lord is deepened. The psalmist is crying out for mercy. He's pleading with the Lord. James Vaughn says, everyone prays, but very few cry. But those who do cry to God, the majority would say, I owe it to the depths. I've learned it there. That's true in my own life. The times that I've had to cry out to God, not just pray. There's a difference there, isn't there? When we've had to cry out to God, it's in those times that we've learned our deepest devotion. And so he's crying out for mercy, which is good because mercy is who he is. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who God is because that's the response that God gives to Moses, when Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock, and God, he, he wants to know, he wants to see God, and he asks God who he is, and as God passes by, and Moses just gets a little bit of the afterglow of who he is, because he couldn't actually see him face to face. He wouldn't be able to handle that. And he says, well, who are you? 
(laughs) And the answer is the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Mercy is who God is. But mercy is also what he does. Romans 8, 31 and 32, if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over to us all, how will he not also with him freely give all things? Mercy is what God does. He didn't even spare his own son, but delivered him over for us. How then will he not freely give us all things? And we cry out for mercy because mercy is what you need. Lord, hear my voice. Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? He understands that what he needs is mercy. God's mercy is in a theory. It's not a bunch of words or stories from a long, long time ago. It's the reality upon which your life depends. Mercy is the reality that anchors you into the life and death of Jesus Christ. This is David Paulson. He says, he has come for us. He has come for you. You need help from outside yourself. And so ask for help. This psalmist understands He needs help from outside himself. And that's true for all of us. That's one of the barriers, isn't it? It's really one of the barriers of coming to Christ because we actually have to admit that we need something outside of ourself. And we as a people don't like to admit that. We want to be self-sufficient people, don't we? I don't need any help from anybody else. I can take care of myself. I can stand on my own two feet. I can pull myself up from the bootstraps. But that's the opposite of really what it means to become a Christian. To become a Christian means that we see and we recognize that we would never be able to save ourselves. That we need help from outside of ourselves. We recognize that help can only come from God. As we move on then, we see the second point, that you are Ruined, this is the, the word that the prophet Isaiah used, right? When he came face to face with God, he said, I am ruined. <laughs> and so you are ruined without God's forgiveness. But there is forgiveness with God, and it leads to a reverential fear. It leads to reverence, as we'll see here in verse 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We are ruined without God's forgiveness. Does God keep a record? Does God keep a record of everything that you do, of all your sin? Does he mark our iniquities? Yeah. Mark, uh, uh, Matthew 12, 36 actually tells us that. It, it says that one day you'll have to stand before the Lord and give an account for every careless word. So there is a record being held. And most people think, well, listen, I'm basically a good person. And we rely on our kind of version of goodness 
you know, to get us into heaven, as it were. But just add up this month, 17 days. Just give us the last 17 days' worth. Just add up this month of every wrong thought you've had, of every careless word or deed, things that you've done and broken the direct kind of commands of God. And those are just the sins of what we call commission, the things that you've committed. But there's also the sins of omission, the things that you should have done that you didn't do. Right? This is why we pray these prayers of confession. And so add up all the commands of God that you've broken, plus the ones you've ignored or the ones that you failed to do. Just even this month. I know I wouldn't be able to stand before the Lord. Have you loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time? Have you loved your neighbor as yourself? Well, who's my neighbor? Your immediate family with no hint of selfishness, no hint of anger? Have you put to death immediately every, every uh, prideful, lustful, greedy thought? Have you been faithful in prayer and in studying God's word? Right? I, I could keep going, but, but you get the idea, right? If I were to add up, if we were to add up all of our sins just this past months, we wouldn't stand a chance if you stood, if you stood before uh, God for judgment. He knows everything that we've done and not done, not only in this past month, but for every single moment of your lifetime. Without God's forgiveness, you are ruined. But there's good news in verse 4. But with you, there is forgiveness. That's a great but. And the connection here between forgiveness and fear, because he says there is forgiveness that you might be feared, um, is, is striking, isn't it? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The fear of the Lord is portrayed as not only the outcome of our forgiveness, but one of its goals. It confirms that the fear of the Lord has less to do with slavish, um, servile kind of terror, but more with a holy reverence, right? We stand before God with a holy reverence. And even so, this reverence has a component of kind of honest fear. When sinners see the magnitude of their sin and experience the joy of forgiveness that comes from God, at, at their best they glimpse what might have been the case had they not been forgiven. And so this forgiveness um, brings relief. Ironically, it brings a sober reflect, uh, reflection that settles into reverence and a godly kind of fear. Because sin can never be taken lightly, lightly again. Forgiveness never lightly received. God's forgiveness doesn't make us flippant about our sin. First John 1 is true, but it doesn't mean it's, that we're just flippant about that. Thomas Adams put it this way. He says, Lord, who can know you and not love you? Know you and not fear you. 
We fear you for your justice and love you for your mercy. Yes. Fear you for your mercy and love you for your justice. For you are infinitely good in both. No man more truly loves God than he that is most fearful to offend him. And so the psalmist tells us that no matter how deep you may be in guilt and despair, you can cry out to the Lord for mercy. And he adds that it leads us to fear because without it, we are ruined. Now it's interesting, once we get into the New Testament, nowhere are the people of God called, referred to as sinners anymore. It's, it's, it's now your saints. Right? That's the good news of that. Paul refers to himself as a sinner, but even then he's referring really to the old, the old person he was before he was in Christ. And so there's good news that's there, but as we are saints, we're not flippant about our kind of sin and guilt that we've been rescued from. It makes us stand before a holy God and respond to him in worship, respond to him in reverence. We'll have an opportunity to do that tonight. It leads us then in verse um, to our third point. You can wait confidently for God himself. And your hope is in the promises of his word. Verses five and six. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. I don't know about you, but I hate waiting. I'm not a very patient person, right? You want to know how holy I am as a pastor? Come with me in traffic while I'm driving. (laughs) You'll find out. Because that's where I'm most impatient. My wife knows this to be true, right? I'm just impatient. I don't, I don't like waiting. I hate waiting. And yet we have all of these times in the Bible where we wait. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen in the morning. And as I would say the same, same those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Trusting God is not comfortable. Right? Because the moment that you're in that's causing us to have to trust the Lord isn't this kind of like, you know, picturesque kind of thing that you would put on a, on a, you know, a card. This colorful valley, this quaint village, a church steeple with this kind of sentimental slogan. Now, trusting God can be extremely uncomfortable and even, and even painful. Some of you will know this to be true. Rabbi David Kimchi, he's one of the early Hebrew uh, lexo, um, he dealt with Hebrew a lot. <laughs> he defined this kind of verb wait um, with, with reference to the verb twist, to twist. That is, waiting on the Lord involves tension and pressure and stress. How could it be otherwise? Waiting is kind of pent-up irresolution. 
We're, we're waiting for something to be resolved. And in that waiting, there's this tension, this pent up. It isn't solved yet. It hasn't been resolved yet. It's not easy to wait trustingly for the Lord. And yet, that's what we're called to do. Psalm 123, 2. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, so he has mercy on us. We are servants looking and waiting for the master. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Psalm 143. This is, this is my point. You may be going through hell right now. You may be bewildered, gasping, and frightened. But that doesn't mean that you aren't trusting God. It might actually mean that you are trusting him. Isaiah really understood something. He understood that in this tension, that our strength is renewed. Those who wait upon the Lord, their strength is renewed. How so? Well, there's something about coming to the end of ourselves. There's something about coming to the end of our own strength and our own wisdom. And that's when our hearts finally crack open. And we're able to receive the love of God. The love of God pours in. When we have nothing left of our own, when nothing will suffice but that which is directly and immediately of God, that's when God alone is our sufficiency. That's when we find him to be who he is. And so he's worth the wait. I found this to be to be true um, over the last few months because I came to the end of myself. <laughs> I, I literally had no strength left. I had nothing left. And that's where God met me. It was in those times that God revealed himself to me in new ways that the love of God poured into my life. But I had to wait. I had to wait. It, it just didn't come on a, on a normal sunny day when everything was going well. For me, in this, in this season anyway, it was, it was <laughs> having cancer and going through um, a hellacious treatment within that. And really coming to the end of myself, having nothing left to offer. And that's where God met me. That's what he renewed my strength. And it wasn't physical strength yet. In that moment, it was, it was really the emotional strength. It was the strength uh, to, to go on. It was this, it, he renewed uh, my spiritual strength, my trusting in who he is, my trusting his promises would be true, my trusting in, in who he actually says he is and how he reveals himself in his word. 
There were times in those moments when I had nothing left. Laying in bed at 3 o'clock in the morning, God met me in ways that he had never met me before. And it felt like he was in bed holding me. I know that sounds maybe kind of weird, um, but, but he felt that close. His love was that tangible. But I had to come to the end of myself. I had to wait. And so you can wait confidently for God himself. The psalmist is waiting on God for that sense of his presence. He's waiting and hoping for the intimacy with God that he formerly knew. He wants God's assurance that he's his child. Um, James Vaughn points out four reasons why God often makes us wait for him. Um, first, waiting exercises our, our faith, our patience of faith. Second, it gives time for the preparation for the coming gift that we're seeking. Third, it makes the blessing sweeter when it arrives. Fourth, it shows the sovereignty of God to give when and as he pleases. This causes us to submit to his sovereignty, acknowledging that he alone is God. Um, I read as I was studying for, for this, a, a pastor say, the waiting may be hard, but it never leads to disappointment. And at first I was like, well, hold on a minute. Wait, that's not, is that true? Because sometimes I've been disappointed in, in the waiting. The waiting didn't end the way that I wanted it to end. So I'm like, is that true? But the truth of the statement rests entirely on what we think we're waiting for. In other words, the question isn't simply, what am I waiting for, but what am I hoping in? Learning that waiting and hope are intimately tied together. Waiting, by definition, has something hoped for at the end of the wait, right? And so we're waiting, we're hoping for the right job. We're waiting and hoping for a good report. We're waiting and hoping for a child. But what if those things are given? God never promises that our seasons of waiting will end by receiving exactly what we want. Not all infertility ends with a baby. Not all cancer ends with a cure. <laughs> I'm in a season of waiting. I don't know how things are. Things look like they're going well, but I'll find out with a scan. I'm still waiting. Not all singleness ends with a spouse. which means that all our hope can't be anchored in the thing that we're waiting for. Our hope has to be anchored in something far greater than that. What does he say? What is he hoping in? I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and I hope in his word. In his word, I hope. He's hoping in the promises of God. He's hoping in the character and nature of God revealed in his word. Right? We, we, we claim and we, we hang on to the promises that God has given to us. Our hope has to be anchored in the promises that God has given us. 
Here are just a few of those promises that we can put our hope in. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things will work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Isn't that amazing? Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You have Jesus and the Holy Spirit both interceding on your behalf. Which is why 1 Peter 5 says and 5 says, and says that we can cast all of our cares on him because he cares for you. These are promises that we can cling to. John 14, 2 and 3, cast uh, in my Father's house are many, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a house for you, a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. These are anchors for your soul and these are just a few, a handful. When we're in a season of waiting, and you feel yourself becoming anxious, run to the word. That is where we find our hope. We run to these promises and we remind ourselves of the hope that is ours. And we hope in who God is, in his character. Hope has to be anchored in the character of God, the unwavering goodness, the the unwavering faithfulness. The sovereignty of the one making these promises to us. Psalm 46 reminds us to be still and know that I am God. We're to know who he is. Knowing the nature and character of God is to know rest, even in the midst of turmoil. Why? Because what God does flows out of who God is, which means that, he, that if he is good, then his ways are good. And if his ways are good, then his answers are good, even when they're hard, even when they're not the answers that we were looking for. But we don't always view life this way, do we? There are times where, I, where my perspective is, gets skewed, and I, for, I forget to, to, to look at life this way. It's far too easy to view God's character through the lens of my situation or circumstances instead of the other way around. We have to look at it this way. If we're going through a hard time, if we're looking at at God's character through our circumstances and not our circumstances through the lens of who God is, then when we go through a hard time, we think that God must be harsh. Or if we're going through a trial, that God must be angry. Or if we're not getting what we want, then God must be unjust or unkind. But that's us looking at life backwards. We have to flip the lens around. We flip it around and view our circumstances through the lens of who God is, through his character. And so if he is for us, Psalm 56, 9, then he is working for us in this trial. If he is our refuge, our strength, and our salvation, 
In Psalm 18 and Isaiah 12 says, then we are safe. If he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, as we read in uh, Exodus 34, then we can rest in the fact that he will be merciful and gracious and loving to us. If he is great and awesome in Nehemiah 1.5, then remember who God is and then view our circumstances through the lens of his character. We need to be still and know that he is God. And what are we waiting for? As the Israelites waited for God to return them to their land, Isaiah reminded them that they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And the same is true for us. Not the land that we're waiting for. Not the same exact circumstances. But if you're waiting on something, remember that ultimately it's the Lord that you're waiting on. If your hope is set on getting what you want, then you stand a chance of being deeply disappointed or or even disillusioned. But if we hope in the one who is utterly good, completely for us, whose word is sure, whose ways are perfect, then the hope will never disappoint us. So when the trials come, when you're called to wait and be patient, wait well by anchoring your hope in the one whose promises are sure and whose character never fails. I hope I don't have cancer. I'll find out on the 27th. I hope it's gone. I hope it comes back clear. But ultimately, my hope isn't in that. My hope is in God and his word. So even if, I, even if it comes back, listen, it, it didn't work the way you still have some cancer that's there. If my hope is anchored in, in a clean scan and it comes back and it's not, And everything then kind of can fall apart. But if my hope is in God and his word, then it doesn't really matter what the scan says, does it? How should we wait in hope? We should wait and hope expectantly and confidently. The analogy of the watchman waiting for the morning is repeated to make us stop and think about it. And the main idea there is that we should wait expectantly and with certainty Right? If you've, I've never had to stay up all night, like in the military or anything like that. But if you've ever had to kind of do this night watch, right? You look forward to the morning when you're relieved of your duty. And the night can often drag on slowly and you're tired because you're not allowed to sleep on the watch. But you know one thing for certain. What's the one thing you know for certain? What is it? Morning's coming, right? The sun will rise again. You can have that with certainty because it, it's never not happened. The sun always comes up. The night always ends. And this is how we wait. Expectantly, we put our hope in the right place, and then we can be certain. We, we're certain in who God is. 
And that's how we wait and hope for the renewed sense of the Lord's presence. After we've experienced his forgiveness, it will come as we are faithful and we eagerly wait for him. But the psalmist doesn't stop writing here. He's been in the depths of guilt and despair. He's experienced God's forgiveness. He knows that others um, also are where he is at, and they need God's forgiveness. And so, our last point, we have, we haven't experienced God's mercy and forgiveness, now want others to know his plentiful redemption. Or another way you could say it is his redemption sends us out on mission. Verses 7 and 8, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. See, he started off um, out of the depths, I cry to you, hear my voice. He's, he's worried about himself, but now that he's received his forgiveness, he knows uh, where to hope. Now he looks to other people. The striking contrast here is between the depths of his sin of I can't go on like this despair on the one hand and this plentiful redemption of the Lord on the other. It's not a meager redemption. It's not a just get by kind of redemption. It's a plentiful redemption. It's a God-sized redemption. Enough and more than enough for me and you and multitudes more. There is no human depth that he can't redeem. That's the good news here this morning. No matter what your depths are, they're not too deep for God to redeem. And, he, and this holds true for multitudes of people gasping down in the crushing depths. Multitudes in depths of darkness that no one can crawl out of. But a plentiful redemption coming down to lift them up out of the despair who simply look to Christ, this perfect match. When you've been in the depths and then been washed with God's forgiveness, you want others to experience the same thing. The basis for hoping in the Lord is that with him, there is loving kindness. He's not mean and gruff, but loving and, and merciful. Right? That's how he revealed himself to Moses. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding, abounding, plentiful in, if you will, loving kindness and truth. David, who cites that text in Psalm 103, adds, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And it covers everything. It covers all of our sins. He will redeem Israel from what? All. All his iniquities. All of his sin. The psalmist didn't know exactly how God would do this. Right? This is still Old Testament. This is before Jesus comes. He doesn't know how this will happen. But for us... Looking back, we, we know, right? We, we see Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and he heard that his son would be a forerunner to the Messiah and that Mary was with the child with the Savior through the Holy Spirit. And he prophesies in Luke 1, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, 
for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. With his blood, Jesus accomplishes our redemption. He saves us out of the slave market of sin. Do you know that today? Have you experienced that? That plentiful redemption that he's redeemed you from all of your sins? That he's pulled you up out of the depths of guilt and shame? Because one of those promises that we cling to is that there is redemption with the Lord. That's why we do this sacrament every single week. To be reminded of that. When Jesus visits you with God's tender mercy, we know this joy unspeakable that comes from having his abundant redemption applied to your soul. Your record of sin then has been destroyed. That record that's been kept, that is being kept, as a Christian, we stand before God in a different way than those who haven't been redeemed. We stand before God with our record wiped clean. There's this transfer that happens, right? God takes your record of all of, all of your sin. He takes that and puts it on himself, and he gives you his righteousness. So we stand before God, and what God sees isn't our record he just sees the, the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us because Jesus took our penalty. That record has to be dealt with. And so Jesus deals with it. And he deals with it this way. His blood shed for you. His body broke for you. So the question this morning is have you experienced that? And that should result in unspeakable joy. Your sins and lawless deeds, he remembers no more. And so we love him, we praise him, we fear him in the right way, right? We stand before him, not being flippant about our sin, but understanding the weight of that, that Jesus had to pay for that. And so that's why we come to the table this morning. We come, not kind of flippantly, but we come... Understanding the weight of our sin. Understanding what Jesus had to take and what he went through. And we come with fear and reverence before the Lord. But that's an unspeakable that we can actually walk away from the table. Lighter, as it will. <laughs> because we know what God has done. And if you're here this morning and you haven't experienced that, you haven't experienced that being pulled up out of the depths, This invitation is for you this morning. Don't come and receive bread and wine. That's, for, that's what the Lord instituted for those who have received his mercy and grace. But this morning, receive his mercy and grace. We'd love to talk to you about that. I'll be up here. John will be up here. Grab us while people are taking communion or even after the service. We'd love to explain how you too.
can receive that mercy and grace and forgiveness. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you for uh, your goodness and your grace to us. Uh, thank you doesn't really seem to uh, be enough. But we love you. Um, Father, we fear you in the right kind of way. And so as we come to the table this morning, Father, I just pray that we would um, just have that unspeakable joy. Um, can't imagine what Jonah must have felt like after you rescued him from the depths. And yet that's our story too. You've rescued us from the depths. And so, Father, we come this morning with grateful hearts, with reverent hearts, um, but with joyous hearts as well. Father, we thank you that your redemption is plentiful for each one of us as individuals, but also corporately as well. That you abound in steadfast love. Father, we thank you for that in the way that you demonstrated that on the cross. Father, if we ever have any doubts of your love for us, we just have to look to the cross. We just have to remember this body broken for you, this blood shed for you. And so do it again this morning, Father. Amen.